Hi, everybody, and welcome to Alan Robson's Grizzly Tale podcast. Thanks for joining us here on Robson's World, where we're adding new things all the time. We hope you find lots of great listening and some great viewing as the weeks and months go by. We're going to be adding so much to it, so get ready for that and watch out for the new Robson's World Emporium that we'll be opening very, very soon. However, I'm going to do two words side by side that should never go together. Grizzly and the Vatican. Now, you may think, well, what can they possibly have that's grizzly? Well, let me tell you. Do you know there was a 60-year period when the Pope was not allowed to leave the Vatican? Otherwise, he would have been shot to death by the Mafia. Now, it is not the organisation today that it used to be, but back then its name meant something, and it meant something that you paid close attention to. You didn't take this kind of thing lightly. It was a group of fighters that were formed originally, if you want to know where the Mafia originally came from, they formed sort of like an Italian resistance to fight the Saracen invasion of Sicily. Now, this was back in the 800s, and yet the Mafioso became a big part of Italy. And during the 19th century, it had transformed itself into this massive spidery network of small mafia clans that were dedicated to protecting local people from any landlord that might have been a bit oppressive, any officials that were taking money and putting it into their own profits. And the mafia would do it. They'd help anybody for a price. Now, the early modern mafia became the Vatican's eyes and ears throughout Italy. The Mafia worked for the Pope. But the standoff between the Pope and the Vatican in Italy almost came to a massive explosion in 1929 when it signed a thing called the Lateran Treaty with Mussolini. Now, Mussolini, a fascist who allied himself to Hitler in the Second World War, he promised the Vatican would be recognised as a separate country within Italy. And they would receive compensation for any territories that Italy would take off it. There, the Vatican's links to the dark force that is the Mafia became massive. The Mafia was already completely criminalised, but it already had sufficient numbers throughout Italy to not be something that even the government would want to try and deal with. Now, the Pope and the Vatican of that time, they seemed pretty much content because the Mafia would tell them if anybody was speaking out against them, there was a constant stream of money coming in and going out from the Mafia Everything seemed to be going pretty well. But the Vatican even then realised that the bonds between the Pope, Vatican City, and the Mafia were already too strong to break. So, 
its partner, and that's exactly what the Mafia were, the Pope would turn a blind eye to anything that the Mafia did. Murders, rapes, prostitution, killing, attacking and mutilating poor people who didn't give them any money. It just looked the other way. And this was all during the lead-up to the Second World War. The Vatican was also a friend of the pro-Nazi Spanish leader Franco, General Franco. And Franco turned a blind eye to the theft of 300,000 babies from Spain by Catholic priests and nuns. And Franco told the mothers that the babies were stillborn and the Vatican sold them on the international baby market and this made Vatican City one of the richest principalities on earth. Now all this happened because the Mafia had connections to do all the bad stuff. And by the middle 1930s, the Pope and all of the priests on Vatican Hill were criminals themselves because they were dealing in crime every day. So when the Second World War kicked off with a Pope, Pope Pius Twelfth, who hated Jewish people, everything was in place. Hitler was fighting with full support of his church, the Catholic Church, because Hitler was a staunch Christian. But the Pope hated the Jews. Hitler hated the Jews. It was a match made in hell rather than heaven. So, they named Pope Pius Twelfth Hitler's Pope. And after the war, under the hand of Bishop Alois Hudal, an awful lot of people inside the Vatican helped the Nazis flee. They kept lines of communication open with them when the Nazis went to hide in Catholic countries in South America. People like Edouard Rocheman, the Butcher of Riga. Uh, Frederick Forsyth fictionalised his story in the Odessa Files. Adolf Eichmann, Josef Mengele, the Torturers. They benefited from the Pope, hiding them, getting them out of Europe and getting them into South America. So, in more recent times, popes have decided to say that they would fight the mafia, that they would confront people who have hoarded Nazi loot and anyone who would dare launder mafia money whilst all the time the Vatican was using mafia money and laundering it through all of the tourists that came to visit the chapels and holy buildings of the Vatican. Pope John Paul I, although we can't prove it, it seems fairly likely that he paid for all of this with his life. A lot of people believe that he was murdered because he was wanting to pull away from all of the criminality. Now, as you know, I'm not unhappy to have a poke around in the dark corners of any kind of history. And I once did a show from Vatican City, Alien Jesus 2, The Jesus Seed, 
and I got promptly removed from several parts of the Principality. I was even asked to leave it completely by the end of it. You can check out those shows, uh, Alien Jesus 1, 2, 3 and 4 on robsonsworld.com. However, on the night of the 28th of September... The, the happy Pope, the smiling Pope, Pope John Paul, everybody loved him. He retired to bed to have a look through some papers that the Vatican was dealing with the Mafia. He hated it and he wanted rid of Mafia involvement. He read about the deal between Archbishop Paul Mancinkus and Robert Calvi. Uh, one of them was the president of the Vatican Bank and he took over the Venetian Catholic Bank due to threats and intimidation by the Mafia. Pope John Paul was determined to end any connections that the Vatican had with the Mafia. At 5.30 the next morning, Pope John Paul was found dead. The papers that he was working on were missing and he'd only been Pope for 33 days. But he made it clear what he wanted to do and the Mafia, I think, were not prepared to let him do it. The doctor at the Vatican, a bloke called Buzanieri, he arrived and he was actually there within about seven minutes. And as he lived an hour and a half away, a lot of people wondered how that happened. He didn't examine the dead Pope. He didn't ask about symptoms. Instead... He said he died due to a massive myocardial infarction. In other words, a heart attack. However, no cardiac arrest would have left any victim lying, looking so peaceful and calm. It was as if he just nodded off to sleep. If he'd had a strong heart attack, that certainly wouldn't be the case. And also, where were all the papers that he'd booked out the night before? He'd never left his bedroom that evening. So where were they? No autopsy was performed. The embalmer started work on him at 7 o'clock the same day, despite the law saying that at least a full day has to elapse before they could. And despite it being normal practice for the internal organs to be removed before you start embalming the body to make it look good for anybody wanting to look into the coffin... No steps were taken. They wanted to make sure there was nothing left that could be forensically examined. They wanted to keep a lid on it. Big style. So, who killed the Pope then? Well, obviously you've got to say the Mafia. The Mafia has influence all over Italy, especially in Vatican City. We already know that they were teaming up during World War Two and the lead-up to it. So everybody took a close look and scrutinised the death of Pope John Paul I. Now, he became a popular Pope almost overnight, and as soon as he got into office, he began to find all kinds of corruption inside the Vatican, including direct ties to the Mafia through the Vatican Bank. They would never have been able to buy the Venetian Bank if the Mafia had not acted to intimidate the people who owned it. 
Pope John Paul I wanted to take action to end any corruption and to clean the Vatican State of the Mafia. That has to be the reason, doesn't it? Why he was killed? There's another wing of Catholicism. The super-conservatives, the ultras, they're known in Vatican City. And the Pope had already said he wanted to revolutionise his religion. He wanted to allow birth control. He wanted to try and find ways to give poor people some of the church's enormous wealth because it is one of the biggest and wealthiest organisations on the planet, while the people who follow their faith die of starvation all over the planet. So he wanted to make huge moves which would strip the Vatican of money and, in turn, any power the Mafia would have. When he was found dead in his bed, a new Pope was chosen and it was no surprise to anybody who knows the political situation that his replacement was a super-conservative, an ultra-conservative Catholic who would not rock the boat. Now, I have to mention a Masonic lodge that may or may not have anything to do with it. When the body of the Vatican Bank's Roberto Colvi was found hanging underneath Blackfriars Bridge in London in 1982. Check it out, you'll see the photographs are there. It really blew the lid off what was really going on with the Pope and in Vatican City. It also brought to light the power of a Masonic Lodge called the P2. The P2 Masonic Lodge housed members of the Mafia, archbishops, Italian politicians, Italian press, Italian writers, Italian famous folk of all descriptions. Now, officially, this organisation, the P2 Masons, were banned by the Catholic Church. However, so many very famous Catholics were in P2 most people knew that it simply went underground. Any investigation into their activities would have been disastrous because their membership included members of the CIA, MI5, the FBI, the KGB. It was a mixture of very, very dangerous people, all part of a major conspiracy and all dealing with the Pope and Vatican City. Now, I know the show that I did when I went across there was the second in the series of Alien Jesus. So I must mention aliens at this point too. Now, a lot of people heard that the Vatican City had people working at the Hubble Space Telescope. And they were also aware that the Halley-Bopp comet had a companion. Something was flying alongside on the same trajectory as the comet. And most people believed it was a spaceship, an alien craft, because it flew off after the comet passed. Now, the Vatican and this spacecraft, people talk about it. We don't know whether it's true. It may be, it may not. 
but a lot of people swear that the Pope had direct involvement with aliens that watched the comet go by and they were watching it go by so they could intervene if there was any likelihood of it hitting Earth. Now, a lot of people say, well, why should the Catholic Church be worried about life on other planets? Well, if life on other planets is found to be proven true, and to be honest, I believe it already has, well, then there's no point in religion at all because all of the religious books say there is no life anywhere else. And if you think about it, the significance of Jesus, remembering that there's no actual history on Jesus, it's all stories made up 200 years after he was supposed to have existed, but any significance of Christ, if there are aliens on other planets, is by the by, is patently not true, nor significant. Which means that if there's no Christ, there's no original sin. And a lot of members of the people who work at the Vatican City, the Pope's staff, have said that they would wish to convert any aliens that are found anywhere in the universe to Catholicism, despite the fact that by finding an alien, you're proving that Catholicism has no root in truth. It was all hype to control people. Now, if you are a Catholic and you're happy in your faith, please remain happy in your faith. All the stuff that I'm telling you is merely supposition. But blame me, scary supposition. Because you see, we can prove all the things that we're talking about. We can prove that all of the, the events happened unlike anything in the Bible. Nothing at all can be proven. So, where do you go after the whole alien thing? Well, is there any evidence? Now, conspiracy theories abound all over the place, and it didn't just stop when John Paul I was murdered or had that cardiac infarction that didn't even move his body an inch. His successor had two assassination attempts and links to the Stasi, the secret police of East Germany. In 1998, a member of his very own security staff, the Swiss Guard, murdered his boss and murdered his boss's wife. Now, this was considered at the time an, an unfortunate case of, of someone going mad. But the murdered man was Alois Esterman, and he had proven links with the Stasi in Eastern Europe, in Eastern Germany in particular. But what's more interesting, he was the man who saved the Pope in 1981 by leaping in the line of fire. So was Easterman killed off by the Vatican because he was someone connected to an assassination attempt to stop those who have ties to the Vatican becoming public? In other words, if the Pope's connected with a Stasi, were violent, vicious, brutal murderers, and they're also linked to the Mafia, who had a similar reputation, what does that make of popes and the high priests and bishops? They're all in it together. There's no other way you can look at that. Now, 
Some people believe that John Paul I was actually killed with poison. People believe they put a little bit of poison. They think it might even have been digitalis in his late night coffee because he always had a big frothy coffee before he went to sleep at night. Now, people say that it was poison because the cup was the first thing to be taken out of the room and not to be tested. It was taken by someone, nobody knows who it was, but it had gone, the saucer was still there. Now, one would have thought that with a Pope lying dead in bed, that the people that arrived in the morning would have a lot more to worry about than grabbing a cup and making sure it was boil-washed in a sink before notifying people that the Pope was dead. Does that not seem a little odd to you? Now, Jesus Christ, and I'm not religious, not that we are religious, I'm very spiritual, but I'm not a believer in conventional religions. But if you were, and if I may, I've read the Bible, I know the stories, Jesus told everybody that if you were a wealthy man, it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than get into heaven because when you're rich, when you're wealthy, you have power and that power will corrupt you and you will do bad things to hold on to the money that you've got. So if you're wealthy, you can't be a good Christian. That's what the Christians say, not me. Now, if this is true, with the trillions of money and art that the Vatican has in a library that's worth £170 trillion, pounds, that's just its library. It also has banks that it owns. It's one of the richer organisations on the planet. Jesus would say, therefore it has to be corrupt. So we should all think that too. You have a choice. You believe whatever you wish. I always say, think about things and then make your own decision. But it's strange, isn't it? I know the world is full of very nice people who are Catholics, decent people who try to live a good life and raise their children well with all of the right messages. But this whole thing begs an awful lot of explanation and we already know that there will be no explanation to any of it. So let's move on to a perhaps more straightforward grisly tale. An awful lot of us, when we were kids, used to go to Blackpool. Sharabang trips, they were called. Stick all the kids on a bus, all the mams halfway up eating sandwiches, and all the dads at the back of the bus drinking beer and needing to stop the bus every 300 yards for a wee. That's my memory of it. And when we talk of witches, don't know about you, but I always think of the gnarly, wrinkled old hags in Shakespeare's Macbeth. However, the good people of Blackpool tell a very different story from World War I. Three sisters lived in an old house where Forest Gate became North Park Drive near Stanley Park in Blackpool. They were three of the most charming people anyone could hope to meet. Three Catholic ladies, 
always at church. They were always polite, well-dressed, willing to help anyone. And these were dark days for Britain. Every news bulletin seemed to spell out more bad news. The Turks attacking the Suez Canal, German U-boats sinking supply ships, Zeppelins raining death on our cities, and thousands killed every day in the new offensive in Ypres. It was a time when, with the majority of men fighting overseas, women were urged to leave their homes to keep the factories running. It was May 1915 when the sisters Flarty, Emmeline, Flora and Ruth let it be known that they were trained nurses and they were willing to give assistance to anyone who needed it. Now, medical staff were thin on the ground, many having joined the forces, and those left having to cope with impossible workloads. There was no proof the Flarty sisters were ever nurses, but we can't say they were, and we can't say they weren't. The Flarty sisters began taking in orphans, and those children who were left at home while the mothers kept the wheels of industry turning... In these troubled times, records were rarely kept, and the sisters used this to full advantage, for they were not nurses, they were witches of the darkest kind. To everyone living around them, they were religious, Christian, caring old ladies who would do anyone a favour. Yet, behind closed doors, they were a very different proposition. Those children who would be returned to their mothers each day were treated well and kept amused, but the others, who had no one to watch over them, were preyed upon by these evil sisters. It was an incredible and amazing double life, and the legend that follows is fascinating. Yet it has been told to me on three separate occasions, so there's likely to be some truth in it. The discovery of their darkest deeds didn't happen until long after the Great War was over. In fact, had there not been the Great Strike of 1926, they may never actually have been found out. For this was the first general strike in British history, and it was called in support of the miners, following a breakdown in their negotiations with the government. Workers downed tools across the country to march, and such was the case in Blackpool. Almost 4,000 men, women and children walked up the Golden Mile, up to Church Street, then along Forest Gate, and past the Flarty sisters' house. As they marched, they were knocking on people's doors, asking them to join the march. One young man, Charles Kennedy, near the back of the procession, knocked at the sisters' house, and then looked into the window to see three women physically abusing a tiny blonde-haired girl who was screaming. He called to his friend Christopher Hurd, who left the march to join his chum on the path of the big old house. Without further ado, they broke down the sturdy wooden door and snatched the child from these three women who were shocked by the sudden entry. She was being naughty and we were disciplining her. This is none of your business shouted Flora Flarty. Emmeline walked up to the two men, saying, "'If you do not put that child down, I'll have the police to you.' Now Kennedy was beginning to have second thoughts, and Heard was looking very anxious. Perhaps what they had seen was merely a child being smacked. 
They were about to leave when they heard crying coming from a room at the back of the house. And on walking into the back room, they discovered almost a dozen young children aged between three and ten, all chained up and naked. Their young bodies had been cut with razors, and one child was unconscious, his eyes cut out of his head. A search was carried out, and although an awful lot of children's clothing was found, and an upstairs bedroom literally ankle deep in human excrement, there was no sign of the youngsters. The police began an investigation and the authorities paid the sisters a visit and demanded to know what had been going on. Their only reply was, what we do in our own home is our business. The neighbours were questioned, all spoke of the sisters in glowing terms, so eventually the police called off their investigation. Emmeline Flaherty even tried to have Kennedy and Heard prosecuted for breaking and entering. Yet one day... In January 1927, Ruth Flaherty was out walking along South Park Drive to the south of Stanley Park when her bag was snatched by a 15-year-old boy. He ran off and hid himself in trees near where the zoo park is now situated and looked inside the bag for some money. To his horror, he found a small human hand pickled and partially eaten. He told his father, who gave him a good hiding for thieving, and then reported the matter to the police. The young lad had told the police where he had left it, and together they set off to find the bag. It was found exactly where he claimed it would be. However, the hand was gone, possibly carried off by a dog or a fox. The bag was found to belong to one of the Flatty sisters once again. The police searched the house, but found no sign of anything untoward. Several meat items were taken away to be analysed, and they were duly returned when found to be pork mince and some rather rancid veal. The sisters placed their house on the market, and they moved to Air, Island, where they soon were well-liked by everyone, as the kindly ladies they always had been. In the late 1930s, the sewage pipes of the old flatty house were due to be replaced and were dug up, and as they dug, the workmen came across a mass of charred bones and rotten, decaying flesh. Much of it had been pulverised as if to disguise what it was. There were dozens of teeth, patches of matted hair, all buried beneath the house, and various chemicals had been poured over the remains. It was at this time that the country once again went to war and the Flaherty sisters were never traced. The entire story would have remained a mystery, yet purely by coincidence I came across an American magazine called Phenomenon, in which I read an old manuscript sent to them by William McGill, a fellow who lived in County Cork. He had found it in an old outhouse when he bought his current home. It had been written by Emmeline Flaherty in 1948 when she was in hospital. It read, My sisters and I were born to Satan and died to join him. I have no fear that we will be reunited. For over 60 years we sacrificed the children to him. 
hundreds of tributes to his glorious name. We ate of their flesh, and it gave us the power to do the Lord's work. In Morecambe for five years, in Blackpool for twenty. In Ireland, we took the weak to make way for the strong. We ask no forgiveness, for we were naught but the tools of nature and lived as nature intended us. The house belonging to the sisters in Blackpool became renowned for being haunted. The voices of children crying could be heard, calls of mummy and the sound of tiny footsteps running around the attic rooms. In the early 1950s, the house was gutted by fire and it was practically entirely rebuilt. The new tenants knew nothing of its history and suffered no disturbances of any kind. Incredible, dark, grisly tales, and they are everywhere across our land and across the seas. I'm going to tell you if you have ever visited Southern Ireland, we mentioned it there. Most of you will visit Dublin if you're going to go there at all. So let me tell you a quick, quick final tale of a ghost that you can see there. Because of all Europe's capital cities, there is no other that seems able to mix the shabby with the elegant, like Dublin. The fabulous River Liffey meandering through a city of fabulous buildings, side by side with industrial chimneys pumping smoke into the skies against the self-same backdrop. One of the most imposing buildings is the Four Courts, the home of the city's judiciary, the home also of a phantom. No one's really sure who it is, but he, for it is a he, appears at the edge of the domed roof regularly throughout the year. Some say that he's one of the men who actually built the four courts, the man who fell to his death, but there's no record of that ever happening. Others say that it is the hapless soul of a murderer, sentenced to death in the 1920s for murdering a young girl from Caramore in Sligo. But whoever it is, does make a point of being seen, as many have testified. IRA leader Michael Collins came to Dublin in December 1921 to sign the Anglo-Irish Treaty with Britain to give Ireland, excluding six of Ulster's nine counties, its independence. While there, he saw an apparition that he described as glowing yellow on top of the court building. At first, uh, I was blaming the drink because we'd been celebrating, but I was not alone. Many others saw this sight too. I don't believe in ghosts, but what it was was a mystery to me. If it is a ghost, perhaps it is the ghost of British colonialism laid to rest this fine day. Mrs Rachel Peart from Ross Common visited Dublin in August 1936 for a second honeymoon to celebrate 15 years of marriage and was walking along the river hand in hand with her husband Sean. He asked her to pose beside the end of the Hapney Bridge so he could capture the mood of the moment. 
It was a misty night, warm and sticky, without any breeze. He aimed the camera at Rachel and tried to get the bridge and the forecourt's dome in the shot. Yet he could see a speck of light moving to and fro in his lens. He took the photograph, then asked his wife to look at the dome, there, on the ledge that runs around the rim of the dome. They could see a luminous figure running back and forth. He seemed to be doing his utmost to attract attention. Sean took several photographs until the glowing figure seemed to ebb away into nothingness. Two weeks later, the photographs were returned and every shot came out perfectly, except those that featured the four courts building. They were all totally black. In January 1984, a student at a local college spotted a man on the dome of the four courts and phoned the police, believing it was a would-be suicide. The police came and they saw the man sitting on the edge, dangling his legs over the side, and on rushing up to the top, they found no one. Yet the people below could still see the man clearly. A nervous police officer walked along the ledge round the dome and although those on ground level could see both figures, this phantom was invisible to this intrepid and courageous policeman. Once he had returned, trembling to the street, he too could still see the figure plainly. So there we have this week's podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. We hope that you will trawl through the wonder that is robstonsworld.com. It's going to get bigger and filled with all kinds of things that you can experience for yourself. You can either listen to incredible audio captured from all over the world and very soon you'll be able to picture the ghost hunts more vividly by watching them and downloading them from this site too. Until we are back together again, from me, Alan Robson, God bless you, and I wish you well.